Lord, today we do pray for Sharon and do desire that you would, in fact, continue to use her in Mexico as she so desires. We praise you that she's lived many years of faithfulness and desires to continue to faithfully serve you, walk with you, be a light in a dark place. We would desire the same thing for ourselves, that we would be faithful and would, in fact, reach the world in which we live in, the little circle of people that we know that don't know you, that we may be able to share the gospel, and those that do know you, that we would encourage to walk in you. So we commit today knowing that the book of Romans is designed to encourage us along those lines. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to continue in the book of Romans, and we didn't quite finish what we started last week in terms, not so much a side issue, but an important aspect of Romans chapter 6, the concept of baptism. And I figured since there's a lot of misunderstanding, even in reference to Romans chapter 6, particularly Romans chapter 6, mentions the word baptism, and I've said that our minds kind of drift, and we have an image of someone being dunked in a tank. And that's not the meaning in chapter 6, so we had to take a look at the word and issues related to the word, and we're going to continue looking at that, and then we'll move on into Romans this morning. So, newness of life is where Paul is moving us, and the concept of baptism enables us to live life differently than what we lived before we came into a relationship with Christ. So Romans 6, 3 through 5 will be the focus this morning, written to believers in the city of Rome. And again, just a quick reminder, Paul begins with showing us our need for righteousness because we stand condemned and he provides the answer to that condemnation. It's only by faith in him. Paul describes that using a theological and a legal term, justification. Same idea as salvation, except from a legal perspective. We defined it and looked at it carefully. And uh, another theological term that Paul uses towards the end of chapter 6, sanctification. Another theological word, we spent a whole session trying to define it, but the bottom line or the essence of it is how do we now live now that we have been justified? So it's living the Christian life. But it also views it from what God is doing. He is continually sanctifying us. So we're talking about a process, a lifelong process, after we've trusted in Christ, that's chapter 6 through 8. And just to summarize that, there are three parts to it, three chapters, three parts. Chapter 6, laying out principles, so that's where we're at now. But there's, because of our old nature and our old life, we fall into these unbiblical patterns or ways of trying to live the Christian life, so he has to deal with those We call that the problems of sanctification in chapter 7. And what he's moving us towards and introducing, by the way, in the passage we're looking at, is the power that is available as opposed to the problems, the power available to live this newness of life. So that's chapter 8. And in chapter 6, we've looked at the first two verses where Paul raises this issue. Now, he phrases it in a way that is a little bit different than what we would probably write or address the issue. But he's essentially saying, how do we live now that we have been justified? Shall we continue in that old way of living, continue in sin? And then he emphatically says, no, And what he's done is he's raised the issue and asked the question, and then he goes into the answer to the question. So we are talking about the essence of that answer is a unity that we have in Christ. 
So we'll talk some more about that, verses 3 and 4. So we're the uniting with Christ. So the answer, shall we continue in sin? No, because something has happened. A radical change has taken place in terms of relationship to that old life. Now, we're not thinking in terms of the culture. We're not thinking in terms of even relationships. What Paul is focusing in on is the deepest essence of who we are in terms of our nature and in terms of our relationship to God, we are dead to sin. So that's basically the answer that he gives. Now he's going to expand upon that beginning in verse 3. We're not only dead to sin, but now we are alive, you might say, to Christ or united with him. And the Christian life, this is the heart of it, this is the essence of it, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the main principle is this union with Christ. Everything else in chapter 6 and 7, you might even say, and 8, is simply expanding this concept of union with Christ. So there's a lot of aspects to it that Paul is going to expand upon. So that's where we're at. And this is something that in the first century, Paul... Hmm? You don't get that part? We'll get, we'll get into it. Yeah, today we will clarify all the fuzziness in your thinking. Paul is assuming, almost by asking another question, or do you not know? In other words, are you ignorant? In fact, that's the... Meaning of that word, are you ignorant of certain things? So this should be common knowledge amongst believers. This is not a strange or complicated or foreign concept. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian and the heart of what it means to be able to live that Christian life. So we looked at that word, do you not know? So In expanding his answer, he is emphasizing knowing certain things. And as we've been going through chapter 6, I've been reminding you that one of the starting points in the Christian walk is having a knowledge foundation or having certain truths that are part of what we think. In other words, our thinking, because the way we live stems from the things that we believe. I gave you lots of examples. So we've already seen three principles for the Christian life or for sanctification. We already saw that the whole life of the Christian should be lived on the basis of grace. Kind of at the starting point, first thing that he mentions, not only in chapter 6, but that's how he ends chapter 5. We've talked about the concept of being dead to sin. We'll expand upon that, talk more about that. But that's a new reality. That's that's truth. It's invisible. We don't feel it. We don't sense it, per se. Well, maybe you can sense it. But it's something that is not evident, you might say, but it's a reality. So I call it the death to sin is a new reality. And then a third principle is knowledge of certain truths are very important. In fact, I would say even crucial. So I get that not only from the beginning of verse 3, do you not know? But throughout these early verses in chapter 6, for example, in verse 6, knowing this, so he's talking about knowing certain truths, And he's going to expand upon that. And then verse 9, knowing that. Now he's going to expand on some other truths. So these early verses all the way through verse 10, he's laying a foundation of biblical truth that we need to grasp. And then in verse 11, he doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts, but rather than uh, telling us certain things to do, he wants us to believe these truths and in believing them, then we will appropriate them, and he's going to give us some things in 13 and 14. In fact, the exhortations don't begin until verse 11. So everything is based on knowing certain things, and we've been spending some time to solidify these things in our thinking. 
So verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we spent all of last week talking about what that means. So I had to kind of take you through what we commonly think of when we think of baptism, we think of water, and we've been emphasizing in chapter 6, you want to stay dry when you talk about chapter 6, because water is not in view. So we're going to pick up. I'm not going to go through all of the terms, just to remind you, this is just kind of review here. The word baptism, I stressed, is not a translation, it's a transliteration. In other words, it's a word that is imported from the Greek into the English, so as a result, the meaning is a little fuzzy, a little unclear. And I've tried to take you through some of the background on that, but real quickly... Baptizo, very similar to baptism. We've just made it into an English word. That's the verb form, to dip, to wash, to immerse. And I gave you examples from the culture, how the word could be used. In fact, was used in the first century and even before in classical period. The noun form, baptisma. Notice, same sounding, same word. Just We made it into English, the Greek word. There's also baptismas, an adjective or a noun form, a dipping, a washing, washings. And we looked at verses where it's actually translated in that way. So it has a purifying aspect to the word as well, or can in some context. And I mentioned that we can break down the word into three different major ways that the word is used. Theologically, I gave you some of the secular or the everyday usages of the word. It can be used of dipping in a dye. Remember I gave you that illustration. Or dipping a sword in blood to initiate a soldier after he's gone through training. It's even used. Is that us? That's us. (laughs) Yep. That's us. There's some people in there. I'm not sure where you're at. That is us. Three uses of the word, three ways that it's used. The one that we commonly think of, and this is not only people that are raised in Baptist churches, but this ritual water baptism. And I gave you four different examples of how that is the essence of the usage of the word. And we've referred to John the Baptist, which is not a Christian baptism. It's more Jewish. I gave you the example of Jewish washings, where baptismo is also used, that word, the very same word. John the Baptist's baptism is more Jewish, because it's for the nation of Israel to prepare them for the Messiah. There's also the baptism of Jesus, which was a water baptism. Jesus' baptism would be a water baptism, And it also is not a Christian baptism. Now, I didn't say last time, but it would be inaccurate to describe our baptism or believer baptism, which is the fourth way that it's used, the more common vision that we have of baptism. It's inaccurate to say that we are baptism after the pattern of Christ or because of Christ's baptism because his is unique. Ours is in relationship to sin. His is identifying himself with sinners. So there are there's several unique aspects to it. So ritual water baptism, I gave you some examples that is closer to the way the word is used in Romans 6. Romans 6 is not talking about water baptism. But the one that is closer to it are what we might describe as real identification baptism, where water is not involved. One of those is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it talks about a baptism into Moses. And it refers primarily, that whole passage, to the wilderness experience of the nation of Israel with Moses, They are identified with all of the experiences of Moses. And the word baptismo is used in that context. I can't remember whether it's the noun or the verb form. 1 Corinthians 10. It also speaks of them going through the experience of the exodus. 
And you remember in the Exodus, the children of Israel stayed dry. They walked on dry ground. It was the Egyptians that were overwhelmed with water and were destroyed. So it's more of an identification with Moses or a uniting with him. Okay? We also saw there's some usages in terms of Jesus Christ and a uniting with death. In other words, it's also described as a cup, but he talks about it being a baptism. No water there. No water on the cross. What it is, is Jesus identifying with death in order to pay a penalty for you and I. Or uniting himself, the one that does not deserve death, he identifies himself with it on the cross, death and suffering. And he also predicts that believers will experience something of that as well, or at least the disciples in that context. So that's identification. Now, I've separated out because this is a unique baptism, real spirit baptism. It is real, even though it's unseen. It is real because God has done something that is real. We don't see it. We don't feel it. But it is just as real as... I think the illustration of gravity. You don't see gravity, but you know it's real. It's a real, more than just a principle, it is a reality of the physical world. You don't see that. You don't see electricity, but it's real. You can see the effects of it. So also, spirit baptism is real, and it is an identification, or it is a union with something. And in this case, the text says, baptized into Christ. So we looked at it, and I skipped over an area that there's some confusion today that I'd like to kind of look at. And in the email, I kind of asked you some questions about it. There's a charismatic view that basically teaches the idea that this baptism, this spirit baptism, they're talking about, Baptism in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, and they view it as a second blessing. In other words, you have salvation, and then you have a second blessing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in some charismatic circles, not all, they would say also along with it is a physical manifestation of the Spirit in speaking in tongues or other languages. Now, not every charismatic holds that view, but a large number of them. So a second blessing. So is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I believe Romans 6 is talking about, is that a second blessing after salvation? And or, and I think the biblical view, which I presented last week, the biblical view is that it happens at the moment of salvation, this uniting with Christ, and it doesn't necessarily have any external manifestation. It's invisible, but it's real, so I stress that aspect. Well, the support, one of the main supports, is this is the pattern that you find in Acts. You see it in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. Remember, those were, and we're going to look at these passages And in fact, in four different places, there seems to be a second blessing after salvation. We'll look at those, okay? In fact, I'll go through them. So this is a pattern that you can legitimately say does in fact exist in the book of Acts. Bill? Are these, the baptism experiences, are described in the original language with the epi prefix coming upon no, not not with the word, but there are prepositions that are used in those contexts. Yeah, ask, yeah, ask the expert. Yeah, she can tell you. So, we'll look at those passages. What about this pattern? Did you have a... In the, um, I know you're going to get to it, so... Okay. I'll just wait. All right. Good. Most people like to jump ahead, but good. So that's kind of the support that they use. Well, and if you ask for a biblical basis, there you go. 
there's a biblical basis. We're not denying, and I'm not saying that in the book of Acts, there is, in fact, something of a second blessing in at least three passages. It's not baptism. Well, it is baptism. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's power. We'll answer it. We'll answer it. Well, there's a hermeneutical principle that you need to keep in mind that is very, very important that I think answers this, this issue. The hermeneutical principle is that you derive biblical doctrine and practice not from historical books like the book of Acts. You derive your doctrine and practice from books that are designed to teach doctrine. So if you see a pattern in the book of Acts and you can't support it from the letters, for example, or discursive material, then your doctrine is probably a little bit of uh, shaky doctrine. So you derive your doctrine first from epistolary literature or literature that's designed to teach doctrine. And then if you see a pattern in the book of Acts, then you can substantiate a true pattern. Does that make sense? And let me give you some examples, kind of ridiculous examples But you could come up with all kinds of doctrines from the book of Acts based on so-called patterns. So you need to be very careful deriving a pattern out of the book of Acts. Everybody following here? Sorry. I wanted to uh, interpose that sometimes we assume that the things we see in the book of Acts are normative. Exactly. And they're not. They're not normative. That's the point. That's the point. In fact, let me give you some examples, and then we'll expand on what Maddie just said. I was just summarizing what you were saying. Thank you, Maddie. (laughs) Okay, so let's look at some patterns that you could legitimately derive from the book of Acts, and some of them are kind of ridiculous. Just to illustrate what you might come up with, if you fail to apply this hermeneutical or interpretive principle. One of them is obviously the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because you see a pattern, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, and we'll look at those. Okay? Well, what about Acts 1 when we select leaders? Should we come up with a group, two or three leaders, and then select them on the basis of lots? Well, that was done in Acts chapter 1. There's a pattern. Is that the biblical pattern? You find that supported anywhere in the letters? No. What do you have in the very clear passages? 1 Timothy, Titus. How do you select the leaders? On the basis of qualification. Okay, Acts 6 is another example that counters that. Yeah, so selection of leaders. You don't want to base it on Acts chapter 1, even though that is what happened historically. And what Maddie is emphasizing is what you see in the book of Acts is a record of how God worked historically, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, in a period of transition. You have lots of transitions in the book of Acts. From one economy or one way that God is dealing with mankind a transition to a new economy or a new dispensation, a new way that God is dealing with mankind and believers in general. Well, another example, you can come up with a biblical basis for communism and or socialism. In Acts chapter 2, what did the early believers do? They sold all their possessions, gave them to the leaders in order to distribute such that everyone would have their needs met. And you see an example later on in the book of Acts as well, but Acts chapter 2 is one of the clearest ones. So is this a pattern that we have in the book of Acts? Well, no, you, you don't see that in other instances anywhere else in the New Testament and it's certainly not taught in the letters. How about, this is a good one, Uh, Bruce likes this one, this is uh, church discipline. This solves any problems in the church. (laughs) 
Remember chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? That solved that problem. Capital punishment. So should a church have an official group that institutes, like Peter did, capital punishment, Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead immediately. Solved the problem. There's the pattern. (laughs) Okay, that's not a pattern that is biblical. You don't see that anywhere else. In fact, that's only the only place where it seems that we have a record, at least in the early church. Why don't we go to the synagogue first? That was Paul's pattern. He does that consistently throughout the book of Acts. Before he goes to Gentiles, he goes to the Jews. Should we do the same? Well, like I said, we're in a transition period. How about infant baptism? Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 10, where whole households were baptized. This is where Catholics use those passages as supporting the doctrine of infant baptism. But you don't find it anywhere in any of the doctrinal passages. What about handling snakes? Acts chapter 28. They won't bother you. You can also go to Mark 16. There's a passage there. Build whole churches around that stuff. Yeah. Well, they do exactly what we're talking about here in terms of, they would say, well, here's the biblical basis. Well, is that really a biblical basis? Because you're talking about something that happened historically that is recorded for us, but not necessarily a pattern that we are to institute. So here's an example. Some of them a little bit ridiculous, but all the same. Just to demonstrate this principle, you derive your practice and your doctrine from books that are designed or have that purpose. The purpose is predominantly doctrinal. So that is the answer to that. So any patterns that you find in the book of Acts, you need to see if it's supported by anything that you find in doctrinal passages. So Acts is a historical transitional book. So you have a lot of things in the book of Acts, and you can see transitions in the book. It's from God dealing with predominantly and almost entirely Jewish people to God now expanding to Samaritans, to Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So when it comes to leadership, why do we not have apostles? I could have added that to the list. We're not Mormon. <laughs> because we're not Mormon? Okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a pattern of the book of Acts. You have the predominance of apostles in the early part, but as you work through the book of Acts, you have a movement from apostles to what? Pastors? No. There are no pastors even in the book of Acts. I don't want to introduce a new issue here. No. Uh, you guys, you guys know it. Bruce, tell him. Elders. Elders. No, yet elders. That is the pattern. And what do you have in the letters? Now the word episkopos is used, but it's all, the word presbyteros also is used. And I see those words as interchangeable. So you have a movement from apostles from a position to a spiritual gift, and you have a de-emphasis of apostles as you move through the book of Acts, and an increase in the appointment of elders. When Paul appoints leaders in churches, he appoints elders. And the letters support that and give qualification for those leaders. Paul uses two different words, I think, to describe the same office. So Acts is transitional. It's transitional from God being worshipped in Jerusalem to God extending a ministry to the ends of the world. Lots of transitions in the book of Acts. So what you see is a record of how God moved from one economy to another economy, and in that there's a reason why God allowed the early believers and the the apostles to see visibly what he was doing amongst his people. So he made manifestations of that so that Peter, would, first of all, would see that now this baptism of the Holy Spirit 
is given to Samaritans as well. And also this baptism is given to Gentiles, an unheard of concept. In fact, it was unheard of to think of every believer or every Jewish believer to have this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit because only prophets, only kings, and and sometimes even on some, some occasions, kings would lose that indwelling presence. So even amongst Jews, this was a unique thing. And is this available now to the hated Samaritans? And the answer is yes. So they needed some confirmation to see it visibly. And that's what we have in these passages. And even worse than Gentile, Samaritans hated Gentile. So let's look at these Acts examples. And you might turn to Acts chapter 2, first of all. And then we'll work our way through the other ones. How much time do we have? Okay, I'm going to read these real quickly. In fact, would somebody else look up Acts 8, and I'll start with, you got that one? In fact, let's get all of these. Somebody get 10. Somebody else got it? Jeremy got it. And then there's one in Acts chapter 19. I might skip over that one. But in Acts chapter 2, notice what it says. And when the day of Pentecost is the Jewish feast day, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, if you read the context, if you look at chapter 1, it's talking about the believers, a small, relatively small group of believers. Okay, they're gathered in one place, and suddenly there came, remember, Jesus promised this. In fact, he told in the upper room the disciples to wait for the coming of the Spirit. And now, in order for them to to know and be convinced that God is working a miraculous new work. He's going to manifest it in a visible and a dramatic way. Make sense? So in verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and filled the whole house where they were, were sitting and there appeared to them. So a visible manifestation. There appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now, these are believers, an experience they had never had before. And now we're having this experience, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is unique. This is different. Historically, this has never happened before. A universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So a miraculous event, much like some of the miracles that Christ performed to validate that he was the Messiah. Now this validates this new experience of this presence of the Holy Spirit. Do we have subsequence? Yes. In other words, we have believers that after believing, now they are receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so it is subsequent. And you have evidence of it in the speaking of tongues. All right? Who's got chapter 8? Go ahead and read it. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Okay, stop there. Samaritans, unclean people, half-Jews, despised, okay? What's going on here? Are they, can they become believers as well? Can they receive the Holy Spirit? Or is this for Jews only? Keep reading. Who, when they were come down, prayed to them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Okay, they believed. Now are they going to receive the Holy Spirit? Second experience, go ahead. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, they received the Holy Spirit. But if you read the context, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit after they believed. Hadn't fallen on them yet. And then now, in order that Peter and the apostles might see, oh, God is doing the same thing for the Samaritans as he did for us. And there's no record of tongues there, by the way. So it breaks that pattern. Who's got 10, 44 through 48? Jeremy. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers 
who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Wow! Gentiles also? For they were Samaritans is one thing, <laughs> but Gentiles. What's going on here? They had to see it, and they had to have a manifestation of it so that they would be convinced God is working something totally new that he's never done before. Keep reading. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Any more? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They uh, Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Okay, so we have three things there. They had already believed. This is Cornelius and his family. They had already believed. They had already trusted in Jesus Christ. And after believing now, they have this baptism of the Holy Spirit and a manifestation that it's really happened with tongues. So belief, baptism, and then what's the third thing? Water baptism. Water baptism. To convey visibly, even beyond the speaking in tongues, to begin to set a pattern here. Okay? So water baptism is subsequent as a pattern and as common, you might say, but spiritual baptism after the book of Acts, after these manifestations to convince primarily the apostles that God is working universally, spirit baptism is at the same time as salvation. We won't look up Acts 19, 1 through 6. You can do it as well, and you'll find out. We have believers that have been baptized with John's baptism, and they're they're Jewish, but they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. In fact, they were unaware of some aspects of the Holy Spirit, and there are tongues there. So it is no subsequence. It's at the moment they believe that there are tongues. So the pattern doesn't really fit as well. So the biblical doctrine is if you go to the letters like Romans 6 and see Romans 6, not speaking of water baptism, but the spirit baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you find out that it is for all those that have been justified. Remember, he's talking very broadly here. All those that have been justified, now he is sanctifying and he's talking about this baptism. So spirit baptism, predicted by John, we looked at this last week, in Matthew three eleven, Jesus is going to baptize. He's the baptizer, Jesus, but it's not a water baptism. He will be the one that baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the means. And if you want a clear passage, I think we looked up Acts 11.16 last time. We won't look it up today. And in Romans, this baptism, the essence of it is this union, this identification. This is the basis for all of the passages that speak of us being in Christ, being in him. And he in us. Remember, he promised that in the upper room. Romans 6 is talking about that baptism. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 6, 3 through 4, and to kind of stress that, having been baptized into Christ Jesus, so there's the union, there's the identification, And then it says the same word again, having been baptized into his death. So we are identified with his crucifixion. This will be expanded upon as well. Now take a look. The the three words that is duplicated there is a translation of one Greek verb. Having been justified... So let's stress that. Baptism, the spirit baptism, a good quotation I found in Wiest's commentary, the introduction, this is what I'm saying, or placing of person or thing into a new environment. That environment is in Christ. It's invisible, 
It's not material, it's spiritual, your environment, or into union with something. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with something else, something else, so as to alter. And what's altered is essentially we are given a new nature. And our relationship to sin is now broken. As to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. That's a very good description of spirit baptism. One of the best I've found. Say what again? Oh, yeah. The introduction or placing of a person or thing into new environment or into union with something else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. We are transformed. We are different. We are taken from darkness into light by baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it's like a new kingdom. Yeah, we're in a new kingdom and a new environment, you might say. And this is expanded in verse 5. We'll come back to that, but I want to insert it here. For if we have become united with him, it's talking about this, it's referring to this baptism. It's a union with him. That's why I've got it that way on the outline sheet. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, that also means that we are united, and this is what he's getting at. This is the new environment. We are certainly Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's key. And that's a summary of all Romans 8. What it means to be united in his resurrection, we have access to resurrection power. David? On the, uh, the charismatic uh, dogmas then, and they're drawing stuff from Acts, wouldn't that include the laying on of hands? Yeah, there's some patterns there, but you can find some passages. Well, I mean, specifically for receiving the Holy Ghost. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is, that is particularly to the yes, yes, period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The broader idea Correct. is That's mentioned in other places in the letters. Right, right. I think mean, Bible warns us against that anyway. Be careful about it. Careful they about lay it. lay hands on no oh. Yeah, prematurely. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. question. Go ahead. So is being baptized into his death only like, or does it mean we have to also undergo a stripping away of ourselves? No. No, it's at the, we'll get to that, it's at the moment of salvation, we have nothing to do with it. Okay. It's part of salvation. Oh. Part of salvation. Does anything strip away our salvation? We'll get to that in... 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14, in, oh, no. in about three or four months, yeah. Yes. Yes. Very good. Yeah, Galatians 2.20 is another parallel passage with what we're talking about here. And so goes back into that in Romans 6 anyway. Yeah, he's going to talk some more about that. About a whole thing. I, I can't do anything. Who's yep. going, going to save me from this dead man I'm tied to? Right? Yeah, Romans 7, exactly. Okay, so baptism that we're talking about in Romans 6, baptism of the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit is a uniting to his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. No water there. This is spiritual, but it's real. It's an identification. It's a union. And in verse 5, he uses a different word for union there to expand upon and explain what he means by baptism. He doesn't talk about water there. Okay? Very important. Having been baptized tries to translate in, in the Greek an aorist tense. And in this context, it's not only past, something that's happened. He's speaking to believers. So it's already happened. He's not saying some of you in the church at Rome still need to have this experience. He is including every believer. In other words, if you have been justified, then it is past tense. It has happened to you, having been baptized. Now, the aorist tense 
in some context can refer to an action that takes place in a point of time. Not always, but in some cases. But it more often has this idea of a definite past occurrence. Not an ongoing idea, but a point of time experience. And I take it that it's at the moment of justification. It's a completed act, not something that you look forward to. It's also in the passive voice. This is just basic language. What we mean by that, it's performed by someone other than ourselves. So we don't seek it. We don't pray for it. We don't wait for it. It is already in the past, and someone else did it. And I would say Jesus is the baptizer, and the means is through the Holy Spirit. Performed by Christ, through the Holy Spirit, not anything we seek or do. Got it? So spirit baptism is union with Christ. Real baptism. It's also, somebody look up 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We read this last time, but it's good to read it again. Who's got it? Oh, Jeremy, go ahead. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, uh, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. Baptism into what? One body. That's the body of Christ. So being in Christ means we are also into one body, or there's a union between one another, believers one another. So all of us are united by this spirit baptism. And notice there's no time frame. It's not subsequent to believing. It's it's at the moment of salvation. So the timing is at the moment of justification, the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ. Lots of things happened. We were redeemed. We were saved. We were justified. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit. We were filled with the Holy Spirit. We were given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and you can go on and on and on and on. In fact, Lewis Berry Chafer, I think, names something like 35 things that happened to us at the moment of salvation. One of them is spirit baptism. It's an experience. It's one that you may not have a sense of. It's immediate, the moment of faith. It's invisible, but it's real. It's real. Water baptism is simply a testimony, a public testimony to others that is visible for others to see something that is invisible that we have experienced inwardly. And last time I mentioned the examples in the book of Acts, the water baptisms were very shortly after belief. So water baptism is subsequent Spirit baptism is immediate. See the distinction? Okay. Last time I talked about spirit baptism in terms of uh, a person that is trusted in Jesus Christ. Let's use a young boy here just to illustrate it. He's united with Christ the moment he trusted. He's identified with Christ the moment he trusted. He is in Christ identified with Christ. In fact, from God's perspective, it is the same as if we were put on the cross with Christ. It's the same as if we were buried with Christ. Therefore, it's also the same as if what? We were raised from the grave with Christ. Okay, so if we're on the cross with Christ, we're getting ripped apart Yep. in some sense. We're dying. Yeah, Most dying to our old life. Pride and self. Old self. Mm-hmm. He's going to right expect. Right then, it just like happens? Yep. He happened in time. Though. It happened. Yeah, but we're put back over there. Just like but we sinned like, in Adam. Right. He sinned in time. But like it took him three hours before to hang on. The confusion. Yeah, confusing justification to sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's, a, she's okay. She's all right. Okay. We're immersed. If you want to think of this baptism idea, we're immersed in him. He's not water or he's not wet, but we're immersed in him as well. Immersed in Christ. And what? 
Our sins are forgiven or we are purified in Christ. All these things take place at the moment of salvation. These are related to the baptism. And when that happens, this little boy has a new resource available to make him a powerful man in the eyes of God. Using a physical example to convey a metaphorical power idea. So, he's answered the question, we are dead to sin because now we are introduced to something brand new. We are united to Jesus Christ and identified with his new life. And what he's going to do, beginning in verse 4 and on, therefore, we're united to his resurrection. That's the significance. That's what he's getting at. And there's newness of life there. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. We're identified with his burial. What burial conveys is the certainty of death. Through baptism, same word there, no water there, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we have new way of living available to us. We'll come back to that and expand upon that next week. David. It explains to me uh, a verse in Colossians. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for ye are dead. Yep. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Yep, exactly. We're dead to that old way of life. Now, another thing we need to take into account, and we'll do this next week, and it'll be expanded in Romans 7. We still have an old tendency, you might say, we still have that old nature, but a break, a real break has been made between our new life and what we were before. Closing thought, we now have the possibility to live life empowered by Christ because we are united with him. And there is no possibility. Without it. No possibility without it, exactly. Who wants to close for us? Bill, why don't you close for us? This might be your only opportunity. Thank you, Father John, that you give us the word to understand who you are and how you are working. Father, we ask that you transform us to be one as we seek in your word and walk. And may you be pleased in what we think. Father, we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.